talk this morning about the doctrine of the jealousy of God, which, as far as I can tell, is maybe the, one of the three most difficult biblical doctrines to talk about. So you're going to want your Bible. If you've got a Bible, open it to Exodus, 20, or 32, Exodus 32. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 137. 137. I'm going to read scripture for about eight minutes, so you're going you're gonna to want, you're gonna want your, your Bible out. Oh, oops. And I'm going to read 32, 1 through 33, 6, and then 33, 12 to 23, and then 34, 4 to 14, and I'll let you know when I jump. Okay, you ready? When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. What has happened to him? Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took them and handed, and handed, he took what they handed him, sorry, and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat, drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? For you brought out of Egypt, who you brought out of Egypt with your great power and mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was for evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore an oath, to to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all, the, all this land I promised them, and I will be their inheritance, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both, both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was written of was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. And when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it on the in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that they led you to such a great sin, that you led them into such a great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us a god who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It's supposed to be funny. Sorry. 
Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood up at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go. Lead the people to the place I spoke of And my angel will go before you However, when the time comes for me to punish I will punish them for their sins And the Lord struck the people with a plague Because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made Then the Lord said to Moses Leave this place You and the people you brought out of Egypt And go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, and I will, but, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. And so the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now skip to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me from, and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see my face and live. Then the Lord said, There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. Now skip down to 34.4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. And he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the father to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. 
The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their astra poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. It's kind of a lot, isn't it? Friday last week, I had to split my sermon into two parts. Because one of the main themes of 22 to, or 32 to 34 is God making a mediator out of Moses. And next week, we're going to talk about how essential it is for a covenant with God to work for there to be a mediator. Because there's a covenant breaker in the midst. And the covenant's going to require mediation. But one of the things that we can't pass over that's a major theme of this passage is God's indignance with sin. His jealousy. In fact, what he labels it in this passage is jealousy. That's what he calls it. In fact, he says that you could actually call me by name that way. He could say, you could, you could call me, the God, you know the God we're talking about, the jealous God. And he would say, and that would be accurate. Because, you see, in the ancient world, there were many gods, and they were all gods of different things. And so you had to worship lots of different gods because they were all gods of different stuff and you need lots of different kinds of blessings. And so religion was kind of like politics. Try to, you just had to try to keep everybody happy. And what God was saying was true religion was a lot more like marriage. There was only one. There was only one to keep happy. Jealousy is kind of a theme, right? There's this passage we just read. Do not worship any other gods, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. You go back to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Why shall you not make for yourself an idol? The last line, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, right? You go to Deuteronomy, which is a couple books from now, when God gives the law a second time, right before the Israelites, a new generation of them go into the promised land, and he re-gives everything, and he says it again. He says, be careful not to forget the covenant. That the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in any form of anything the Lord has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, I suspect as Christians, um, when we talk about God's justice, we get a little uncomfortable. When we talk about God's wrath, we get a lot uncomfortable. And if we ever talk about God's jealousy, we don't even know where to start. Um, But, and part of the reason for that is, the idea that God is jealous has, has terrible connotations to our modern enculturated ears. I remember some years ago listening to Oprah Winfrey talk and saying that it was actually one of these verses that was when she lost her biblical Christian faith. She's an African-American church in downtown Chicago, and the preacher was up there, and he said, don't you understand that that God is a jealous God? And she sat in her pew. This is the way she told the story. I sat in my pew, and I realized I couldn't believe in a God like that. And I walked out of that church, and I never went back. Um, Nicki Minaj, who I find the most annoying public figure imaginable, said, true confidence leaves no room for jealousy. When you know you're great, there's no need to hate. got some truth in it, right? Jealousy carries the connotation for us of self-importance, insecurity, overreaction, distrust, possession, legalism, oppression, and self-righteousness, right? I mean, that's how I felt about it. I remember, um, Lexi and I actually remember the story a little differently, but I'm going to tell you the way I remember it. Um, when Lexi and I were dating, um, we were having this conversation um, we were at a Christian camp. There were a bunch of like 20-something Christian camp counselors. You know, we we're like 19 or 20 years old. And Lex and I had been dating for a while, like two and a half years or something like that. And um, we, for some reason, we got talking about jealousy. And one of the things I said is, you know, I just don't really struggle like that. I'm just not, I'm just never jealous. I'm not a jealous boyfriend. And then Lexi sort of blurted out in front of everybody that was there, yeah, but sometimes I wish you would be. Sometimes I wish you would be, right? Which is fun. Um, but, I'm, I mean, I, you know, like, what, why would the woman that I love 
want me to be more self-centered, insecure, and possessive. Right? What? Unless, unless, there is some kind of noble jealousy, some kind of jealousy that is rooted in something other than self-righteousness, possessiveness, paranoia, and insecurity. Right? And one of the things that we, we're going to have to make peace with, because this is how the Bible starts— Right? Like, we like to read the last of the Bible, the New Testament, right? But one of the things we need to recognize is the Bible is a progressive revelation. And when you're explaining something to a group of people, even if you do it over 2,000 years, the stuff that comes up front is pretty darn important. I mean, this is some of the very first stuff God tells people. And one of the very first things that God tells people, he's named after I'm God Almighty and I am Yada, the God who is, is I am the God who is jealous. Right? God's jealousy is not an ancillary part of his character. It is a central, essential, and necessary part of his goodness and his glory. You can't get away from it. You have to make peace with it if you're going to make peace with trusting and believing in the biblical God. Um, Which means we're going to have to face the fact that we have a bit of a problem in terms of context because we end up with this misunderstanding of jealousy because we only assume the pejorative or the negative meaning because that's how, that's how English has evolved for us. But in Exodus 32, the context is God's consuming anger towards idolatry, right? His anger burns against the people and he says, he says, Moses, get out of the way, leave me alone and let my anger burn. Now, God is not saying, I don't know if you've ever had somebody who's mad about something and they're like, just let me be mad, just let me be mad. Right? And you're kind of like, just let you grow up. Just let you grow up. Right? I mean, like, that's not—there's nothing emotionally healthy about that. Right? But the assumption here is that God's anger that is getting ready to strike out towards these people is perfectly justified. Um, and in fact, Moses says, no, no, God, don't do anything. But, you know, Moses hasn't actually seen what they're doing yet. If you read the passage, right? He's up on the mountain. He has no idea what's going on. He, has, he can't even hear him. So God's angry. Moses hasn't seen what's happening. But he's like, God, no, let's not kill him, right? And then what does Moses probably do? Turns around, walks down the mountain and says, oh, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> right? That's what he does. So one of the things, the first thing we've got to recognize is that we've, we've got to be able to understand jealousy has two different, very distinct dynamics and meanings. One is the one we normally do. And that is this one. That, because jealousy is a reaction, right? It's morally neutral. It is indignation flaring up within a relationship. And in relationship to something, right? It is an empowered indignation. Now, it can be empowered by pride and fear. We're afraid to lose something, or we think we're better than something, and it's encroaching on us. And pride and fear produces a jealousy of dissatisfaction or distrust. I don't like the way things are going, or I don't trust you. So, we Christians used to have a vocabulary for this. We used to have, you know, the seven deadly sins. And envy was one of those words. You don't hear the word envy very much anymore, right? It's the sin that's not a sin anymore. Well, there's a lot of sins that aren't a sin anymore. But this is one of the big ones. Right? And, but it's, it's a major, major deal. It also is related to this one, which is, also, of course, in the Ten Commandments. Coveting what actually belongs to somebody else. That's, that's jealousy. But see, you see, jealousy also means this. It is the indignation that arises from the offense of dignity or truth. That the inherent meaningful dignity of something has been offended. And the proper emotional response to that is indignation. Right? That's why I had Martin Luther King on the first slide. What was the emotion that empowered civil rights? It was jealousy. But not this kind. This is the kind that stopped civil rights. But this is the kind that drove it forward. It was all jealousy. Both kinds were present. This kind is stronger. And you see, you've got to understand that this is the jealousy of God. This is the jealousy of sinful people. That in order to justify ourselves before God, we accuse God with this and assume this is true of us. We exchange it. And that's one of the reasons why we tend to want to accuse God in it. 
this morning, um, now you might be sitting there and thinking, okay, Nick, is this going to be another one of your like philosophical expositions that we have to sit through for 50 minutes? Yes, on the 50 minutes, but no on the other one, because this has a lot of really practical applications. Like, let me just ask you some questions that I think are directly related to this. When should something bother you? Right? Are you just supposed to be so zen that nothing bothers you? Or does anything that you feel offended about, you should say, oh, I'm, I, it bothers me, so it should, it should bother me. Both of those are wrong. There are certain times when something should bother you. When? What should evoke jealousy and what shouldn't? When should you take offense or be angry, right? We live in a city where everybody's a moral relativist, but we still feel the right to get offended at everything, right? It's like the great philosophical contradiction of our time. But, but you know, you, we've got to— There are some things you should be offended about. And other things we naturally—when should you and when shouldn't you? How do you know when you should stand up for something that isn't in your foreseeable best interest? Like, when, when are you actually morally obligated as a being to actually stand up for something that isn't in your, what, what you can see as your self-interest? When do you do that? When should you stand up for yourself, and when should you give up your pride? What emotions should you feel and express when disciplining and nurturing a child? Right? There's some people who believe that when you, when you parent children, particularly when you're disciplining them, you shouldn't ever show anger. I completely disagree with that. You shouldn't show that side of anger and jealousy, but you should show this side. Now, if you're emotionally unhealthy— in, in such a way that if you show any kind of anger, it's going to get out of control and really unhealthy and really destructive, then better to be—better to pull it back than—but you better tell your kid that's what you're doing. Listen, if, if my—I'm emotionally broken, and my anger—if I let myself have any kind of real indignation about this, I'm going to—I'm going to—my pride is going to get involved, and my fears—and I'm going to be bad. So, but son, you need to realize this—what you did is, is awful, Right? Like, kids should see anger in us, but it has to be an indignation because of the dignity of the truth they offend, not because they inconvenienced us or they've come to the limit of our patience or something like that. When, we're, when, we, when we express anger towards kids, because of that, it's destructive. We're showing—we're modeling immaturity for them, right? So they've been immature. Now we're going to model immaturity and hope that that parents them well, Right? But there is a kind of anger they need to see because they're going to grow up in a cosmos owned by and ruled over the God who is the jealous God. And if they don't see any jealousy, any indignation in us for that which is truly indignant, that is, the dignity of the thing is destroyed, the truth of it rejected, they will never have an emotionally proper relationship with reality. So when and in what proportion— should you automatically be offended when your spouse is jealous? Right? Most people are. If, you, if, you're, if your spouse accuses you of something, and you know it's out of jealousy, and you can play the jealousy card, they lose. Right? There was a couple weeks ago, I was going to something, and uh, Lexi was going to go with me, and then she couldn't because we couldn't find a babysitter, so I was going by myself. And just before I left, she's like, Nick, I'm not sure you should be going to this. And it was very evident the emotion is jealousy. But it was right. It was right jealousy. The whole, we planned the whole thing that she'd be with me. And then I was going by myself. And so I was, I'm going downtown to a bar to hear a singer that I know to support them. Right? But without her. And so we just, we agreed that I'd still go. But it totally perked up my radar to be really careful. As opposed to me just being like, you're just jealous, whatever. Psst, you know? And I could, I, there's a whole bunch more questions I could ask. But see, this matters because if you don't, we don't deal with this issue of the jealousy of God, we can't know God as God actually is, and we can't know what we're supposed to be. We can't know ourselves. There could hardly be anything more fundamental to human existence than understanding the nature of dignity, indignance, jealousy, truth, envy, and where they come together in any kind of being— so I want to tell you four things about jealousy. The first is, jealousy finds its legitimacy and dignity. Jealousy finds its legitimacy and dignity. Um, 
God says in, in Isaiah 42, 68, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. One of the things that is important to recognize through this passage is um, God is acting as though the offense that he takes is right and proper. But it's not directed towards any other group of people. So it's not like the Israelites are killing some other group of people and he's protecting group of people B. No, he's, he's showing that he values and loves passionately and rightly the true dignity of all things, including the truth, namely in this case, the true dignity of himself. Because that's what they're sinning against. They're, what, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're tr- attempting to destroy the truth and dignity of God's deity. That's what they're doing. God is God. There are no other gods. And they are making another god and worshiping it like it is God. And so what's happening is they are destroying their own dignity, the dignity of all of creation and the dignity of God in his covenant by seeking to undermine the reality that God is the deity. He's God. And all of the outworking of the, the jealousy of God is when his recognition that within creation and within himself, the uncreated one, In all that exists, there is an inherent moral truth and dignity that cannot be offended. It's fundamentally there. We can deny it. We can argue against it. We can write doctoral dissertations about how there is no essential truth and there is no essential morality and there is no essential dignity. But God bursts onto the scene in the earliest chapters of his relationship with people and says, that is not true. God isn't actually a relativist. Uh, philosophers call it the ontic relationship or the ontological relationship of ethics. That there's something inherently in it. Whether or not you can prove it's scientifically good for you or not, it just is right and true. It has a dignity to it. Dignity is not a concept that can be supported by moral relativism. But it is the most foundational concept in the Bible. And it is the offense of that dignity that evokes the jealousy of God. And here's the thing we need to recognize. Dignity is not a human right. It's a fundamental moral truth of existence about all things. Everything, abstract propositions, philosophical thoughts, human beings, blades of grass, everything has some created dignity built into it and related to every other thing. And you can, you can believe if you want that you're the only thing that carries any dignity and everybody, everything and everybody else's dignity should bow down to yours. But that's not how God relates to the universe. Your dignity, which does exist, exists dependent and in relationship to God's creative dignity. He created and sustained you to have it. Therefore, you do. And when we treat it as bigger than God's dignity— we are attacking the very thing that gives us dignity. God's jealousy is, is aroused by and finds its legitimacy and dignity. And you can see this in Moses. There's this place in Numbers 11, a couple books later, where God's spirit comes down and instead of just empowering Moses to prophesy, it like hits these other guys. And like this, God's spirit goes into them and they start prophesying. And there's this like this young guy in the camp and he's like, he's like, yo! Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, who's like second commander, he's like, he's like, he's like, Moses, you gotta stop them. You gotta, and, he, and Moses is like, well, he's not like, this is Moses replied. Are you jealous for my sake? You see, J- Joshua's jealous. He's angry. He's like, this has, you can't do this. This offends the dignity of Moses. And Moses is like, dude, what, what do you think is happening here? Are you jealous for me? Do you think this is about me? This isn't about me. I wish, every, I wish God's Spirit hit everybody and every single person among God's people were prophets. I think we have far too few, not too many. You see? You see, but yet Moses was incredibly indignant when he came down off the mountain. Why? Because you see, Moses had straight the difference between his own fear and pride, his own jealousy and envy, and when it would attack these other guys that God had chosen to give his spirit to, and God's divine dignity. Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon on this. I, I, I posted it up on a blog at um, Engage and Equip, the website, if you want to go look at it. But he says in the sermon, there's four things in Scripture that God demonstrates. He has uncompromising jealousy for the dignity of them. And we sh- you should know what these are. 
when the supreme God of all things says, do not screw with these things, it's important to know what they are. The first is his deity. He is God, and he alone is God. The second is his sovereignty, that he has created the universe and everything in it, and he will He will rule over it as he darn well pleases, and that, however he pleases, will be maximally good because he's maximally good. So it's not however he wants. It's not arbitrary, but he will do what—he will listen to his own counsel. Thank you very much about how he rules it. Third is his glory. That is, the quality of God's person is so astoundingly beyond the worth of anything else that it is the fountain of all right devotion, all right enjoyment— all, all right understanding of our relationship to truth. His glory is a thing of supreme quality and his people. That he has chosen to create a people to belong to himself, his very possession, that he has chosen to delight in. And when he makes them his, they become his delighted personal possession and he is jealous over them. The second thing is that jealousy is an unquenchable avenging indignation or avenging anger. Um, If you look back at that Deuteronomy verse, it says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Um, It's very easy for us to think of God's jealousy or his anger, his indignation over sin that is an offense to his own dignity and the dignity of all of his creation as, some, as somehow kind of like an overreaction, you know? And it's one of the reasons why most of us are so emotionally uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell, right? How could eternal punishment, how could anything like that, eternal separation and eternal punishment, ever be warranted? And the, the, part of the issue here, I don't think, is that we understand ethics better than God, but that we just don't understand what it means to be a deity as well as God does. Think about it. Think about it this way. The Bible says in the first three chapters that God created everything and the world gets filled with sin, right? There's the fall. We're sinful. And so the creation is then in a state of indignity, right? Constantly. Now, sin is an offense against the inherent dignity of all of creation, which is going to therefore arouse the right and proper emotional response in God, which is inherent jealousy over the indignity— of sin, right? That's going to happen. Now, the thing is, is God, because he's emotionally perfect, is never desensitized, right? Like, like, do you remember when 250,000 Asian people were killed by a tsunami? Do you remember when that happened? Right? Vaguely, maybe, right? Did you fall on the ground and cry for several hours when that happened? Right? Did it, did it bother you for more than 10 minutes? Maybe, right? Do you think that's the proper, appropriate, proportional response to the tragic ending of the lives of a quarter of a million human beings? Right? You see, the the issue is not that God is oversensitive. The issue is, is that human beings, because of our sinfulness and because of our limitedness, we are by nature fundamentally desensitized to all of reality. I mean, think about it. Think about if your brain was actually programmed to take in every stimuli, every second, all day. What do you think that would do? You're crazy. The, my understanding is the majority of people with eidetic memories, people who remember everything, are, have some form, are struggling with some form of mental illness or depression or something like that. Because the human brain actually wasn't meant to work that way. It's actually, having a photographic memory, memory is a kind of brain malfunction. Because we are meant to keep throwing out stuff constantly so that we don't get overwhelmed. We're meant just not even take, I mean, think about this. Just retaining all your memories can drive you crazy. Imagine if you retained everything. Every, every ray of light, every, everything you heard, even with the background noise. So right now you walk through the lobby and there's a hundred conversations going on and you might hear one of them. But if, but your ears are actually taking in 15, but your brain is automatically pushing out all the other 14 and focusing you on the one. What if that wasn't true? What if you were a hundred percent not desensitized and then you took that in globally? 
And then you didn't get emotionally tired feeling the proper emotional response. When is it right to just forget about the destruction of the dignity of the deity or of God's creation? If you've got a young child in the service right now, you may want to cover their eyes. I'm going to show a fairly disturbing slide. Okay. This is a girl named Abby Aisha, and she was the wife of a Taliban soldier, and she tried to escape. And they decided that the proper punishment for that was to cut off her nose and both of her ears. Now, let me just ask you this question. At what point is it okay to forget about that? At what point is it, have we been mad long enough? You see the problem? Now, here's, but there's a flip side to this because the indignation that we should feel over that sin, when that indignation is against the indignity of it, guess what? There were a few Western doctors that that bothered them. They were jealous over the indignity of how this woman was treated. They never met her, but they were angry enough that they brought her to Britain and they did hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of reconstructive surgery to her face so that she looks like that now. That was also the product of jealousy. Third thing. Jealousy is produced and intensified by intimacy. Think about it this way. Um, I met Lexi, Alexi in college, and um, we disliked each other immediately. But after a while, we, we started dating. And then now, this last May, we've been married 14, 14, right? 14 years. And so, would it be emotionally understandable for me to be just as— Jealous as I would be right now if some guy was chasing after her as the first week I met her Right, it wouldn't be right. Thanks, Ellen. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. That's not as intimacy increases Proper emotional jealousy increases So now this is a this is a huge philosophical and personal problem for us because here's here's what everybody says they want Everybody believes they want believes they want Infinitely loving God and an intimate relationship with that loving God that's deeply affirming. Right? Isn't that what we all want? Here's the problem. Jealousy is produced by love. God's response of jealousy is evoked by his love for the true dignity of all things. And proper love towards another human being is not directed at their sexuality— and it's not directed at what you can get out of them and, or what they can do for you. Or It's directed at their internal dignity. Love is when you love the true good of another person in relationship to the thing they actually are, which is a God-created, God-ordained, God-owned, God-sustained, God-redeemed human being. And so if your love is love— it will create a profound jealousy of indignation if something comes in to fight, destroy, trample under the inherent dignity of that thing. Whether it's a truth or a person. And so be careful saying you want a maximally loving God. Because maximally loving beings love things maximally and have they had the appropriate emotional response when the dignity of those things are attacked by you or me or anybody else. Passion is a dangerous thing when you're a sinner. And the increase of intimacy, the increase of the divine zeal in his jealousy— Think about it. If you read when the, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, before the covenant was given, were they, were they like super, super positive? Perky and positive? No, they were idiots, right? They were they act, acting like they were going to kill Moses, complaining. We don't have any food. Where's the water? The Egyptians are going to kill us. Blah, blah, blah. But did God do anything to them? No. Go back and read it. Read, Genesis, or read Exodus 1 to 18. What does God do every time? Oh, you guys need water? Okay, being a little, little, piff, little tiffy about it, but here's some water. You guys, oh, you guys are hungry. Here's some manna. Yo, you want meat in addition to the manna. Okay, here's some quail. It just, 
provision, 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 provision. And then you get the covenant, and then you get this behavior, and then what happens? People start dying. And it's going to be like that all the way through the rest of the Torah. Why? Because with the increase of intimacy comes the increase of jealousy. Because the dignity of the thing they're sinning against is increasing dramatically. Right? If a guy cheats on his girlfriend, we think he's a jerk. If a guy cheats on his wife, we want to hit him with a crowbar. That's right. You sh- now, you shouldn't hit him with a crowbar. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I, w- I saw this picture this morning. It said, everybody needs a high five, sometimes with a chair on their forehead. <laughs> right? But there, be, why do we feel that way? Because with the increase of intimacy is the increase of dignity. And when that is offended, there is the, the proper jealousy is increased. So just be careful what you hope for or pay attention to what you're dealing with. I want a maximally loving God. I do want that. And I want to know what it means to follow, trust, love, and serve that God so that I am his delight. And so that I do not arouse his proper indignation. Right? Um, the, the historical um, doctrine of this is called the Im- impassable nature of God. Now, people sometimes think that to mean that God doesn't have emotions. Like, how could a perfect being have emotions? Isn't that it, by nature imperfect? Right? People kind of get turned around on that. And that's not really true. If, if the divine being had no emotions, that would not be impassibility. That would be apathy. Ah, uh, pathos. No passions. Right? Apathy doesn't care. If, if God is apathetic, he's not impassible, he's impassable, unable to pass. Like, you can't get his attention. You don't really want—that's deism, right? You don't really want that. God is impassible. That is, he's free of inappropriate or dis- disproportionate passions. Modern theologians tend to call that God's constancy, his emotional health, his emotional dependability, right? The fourth thing is God's jealousy is empowered by goodness. I mean, think about for a minute what it would be like to be Moses, right? In the midst of all this turmoil, all this bloodshed, all this anger, what is so valuable that it is more valuable than the lives of these people? And what empowers and motivates this whole enterprise of the covenant and the people and all that? What's the point of it? What makes this all worth it? I mean, why not just God not have a people? Right? And so Moses is talking with God, and he, sa- and he says to God, he says, God, teach me your ways. Right? He says, teach me your ways so I can understand. I can stay in your favor so I can do what pleases you. I- help me understand what you're like. And, and, I- and in order for that, I need you to go with us. We need your presence. I don't want to go anywhere without you with us. And so God says, okay, I'll do that. And he says, okay, well then, please, sh- remember, show me your glory. Right? And what is God's response? He says, I will let all my goodness pass in front of you. That is, in one sense you could say that's because maybe all of the glory of God, all its multifaceted glories might overpower Moses somehow. And and in some ways that's true because if God doesn't show him his face, right? But in another sense, this is the next thing to be revealed. Why Why is the jealous God a jealous God? Because he's jealous for his goodness. And so Moses goes, and and God shows him sort of the back of his fading glory, and he says his name and what he's like, right? Slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin, wickedness, right? And rebellion. And it says that Moses comes down from the mountain, and his face is glowing so much that people can't look at him. They just can't look at him. The radiance of having seen the, the part of God's glory that is his goodness, which is stated partially in the law and in his deeds and in all of that, that the dignity of God's goodness is so valuable that God believes it is morally appropriate to do what was done in Exodus 32 to 34 in order to accomplish it. It is, it is the maximally beautiful, right and perfect thing. It is God's character. And therefore, when God is, God's jealousy is when creation interposes itself against his goodness, when it is his goodness that gives all of creation its character and dignity. 
one of the things that um, you could say, sort of coming to the end of this, is you could say, okay, so yeah, so the jealousy of God, yeah, that, that sounds um, intimidating or something. Uh, what's the opposite of that? What's it like to be under the, 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 the jealous, the, that same level of passion, but sort of be on the sort of good side of that? Right? What, what would it be? What is it to be God's delight? How, instead of, you know, God's, the, under God's indignation, what about being under God's delight? What would that look like? And um, the Bible does have a category for that. Um, if you look at this passage in the New Testament in Romans, it says this, For God presented him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That's Jesus' blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies faith in Jesus. Now, this doesn't use the word jealousy, but think about it. What happened here? He eternally remembers all the sins, but what did he do? He didn't punish them immediately. In his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, not so that they would never be punished, but he moved back the punishment for the purpose of redemption, so that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he could demonstrate his justice, that is, his good character with its full dignity, and he, he could be just and the one who justifies or gives dignity back to those under his jealousy. Though all those creatures who have evoked his indignation and his jealousy because they've offended his deity or his sovereignty or his love for his people or his own glory, that when that happens, those people are under his, the indignation of his jealousy, his wrath. And so what he does, he takes those sins and he pushes them forward until such a time as this thing he calls a sacrifice of atonement could bring the two together. That he could demonstrate his own justice that he could be just, fully dignified in his own goodness, and justifying or making right with himself to put those who are under his indignant jealousy under his passionate delight. Now the word for that in some of the other translations is this word, propitiation. That, that I mean, you probably use that word a lot, right? But it, it is an English word, it just isn't used anymore. And the word means to make favorable towards or to make someone so disposed towards somebody that you delight in them. You're propitious. That's what it means. And the word, the word in, in Paul's writings here isn't the word for atonement. It's the word propitiation, halasmos. It's to make propitious, to make, to delight in. That what the verse says is, through the death of Jesus, God made it such that he could delight in through the death and resurrection of Jesus, those who had evoked his jealous indignation. That's the point. For, for those people, the punishment they deserve was pushed forward through his forbearance. He waited on it until he could bring this to pass so that those who deserved his jealous indignation, his wrath, could become the object of his pro propitiousness, his delight. And that happens through the sacrifice of atonement that is Jesus. Now, the concept of the sacrifice of atonement we'll get to in a few weeks. That's in Leviticus. It's the next book of the Bible. And by the time you get to the New Testament, you're supposed to know that. Now, you might say, okay, Nick, you always somehow get to Jesus, but what, where is that in the passage? Like, in Exodus 34, where is that concept? And I'm, I'm, I'm glad I asked. And it's in 34, verse 20. Now, listen to this verse. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. So God said, every animal, the firstborn animal of every, of every mother animal, you have to redeem, because it belongs to me. So it either dies or you redeem it. Um, and so that's the, every firstborn donkey has to be redeemed with a lamb. Now, this is what, listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this in the 1800s. Every firstborn creature must be the Lord's. But since the donkey was an unclean animal, it could not be present in sacrifice. What then? Sorry. What then? Should it be allowed to go free from the universal law? By no means. God admits of no exceptions. The donkey is his due, but he will not accept it. But he will not release the claim. He cannot be pleased with the victim. No way of escape remained but redemption. The creature must be saved by the substitution of a lamb in its place. Or if not redeemed, it must die. My soul, or your soul, 
My soul, here is a lesson for you. That unclean animal is you. You are justly the property of the Lord who has made you and preserves you. But you are so sinful that God will not, cannot accept thee. It has come to this. The Lamb of God must stand in your place. You must, or you must die eternally. Let all the world know of your gratitude to the spotless Lamb who has already bled for you and so redeemed you from the righteous yet fatal curse of the law. Must it not sometimes have been a question with the Israelite which should die, the donkey or the lamb? Would not the good man pause to estimate and compare the value of each? Assuredly, there was no comparison between the value of the soul of man and the life of the Lord Jesus. And yet the lamb dies, and the man who is an ass is spared. My soul, admire the boundless love of God to thee and others of the human race. Worms have been bought with the blood of the Son of the Highest, dust and ashes redeemed with a price far above silver or gold. Faith and trust in the crucified and risen Jesus is the means by which the right, proportionate, never forgetting, ever enduring, consuming fire of the appropriate jealousy of God is put on another who is a substitute so that God's infinite attitude towards us is that of his, towards his own son, propitious delight. Let's pray. Father, please help us to be under your your delight, your happiness in us. Help us receive that way. Help us to walk in it and enjoy it and delight in it. Help us to recognize that you have forever been and will forever be the maximally loving God. And in such, you never forget that which shouldn't be forgotten and that you can rightly be called the jealous God because you are also the the loving, delighting God. And help us to have some sense of what we ask for when we ask to be the people of a God of infinite love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.